Okay, we are leaving finally the books of First and Second Samuel tonight. Unless there's a Second Samuel 25, I don't know about. It's always a. Remember one day, uh, Greg Harris was here about a year ago speaking to us. He sat in the front pew before he was going to speak. I was behind. Uh, not the pew. The chairs over here. The front chairs. <laughs> These are more comfortable than pews anyway. I was behind him, and the bulletin said Sandy had made a mistake and said First uh, Peter. No, it said Second Peter chapter four, some verse he quoted. And Greg Harrison, there's only three chapters in 2 Peter. And he turned around and he looked at me and he says, uh, look at this. And he was kind of laughing. And I said, yeah, we believe in extra biblical revelation here. He says, yeah, I see. <laughs> I don't think there's a, we really don't believe in extra biblical revelation. Someone's going to go away and say that now. But I don't think there's a 2 Samuel 25. We finished after the 24 chapters. Now we're switching gears completely, changing. We're going in a totally different direction. And we're going to turn our attention to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi, as you know, is a minor prophet. Let's turn to Malachi. It's right after, uh, I don't know, it's right before Matthew. How about that? <laughs> it's easier to go to the New Testament. It's right after Zechariah. It's right before Matthew. And then count, go back to the intertestamental period, 400 years, and then you're at Malachi. Um, Malachi is a minor prophet. As you know, there are 12 minor prophets, and in the Hebrew Bible, they're called the Book of the Twelve, or simply the Twelve. That's how they refer to there. Actually, not listed last in the Hebrew Bible, by the way. Second uh, Chronicles is. But the books are called minor prophets. If I asked a guy one time in a Sunday school class years ago, why are they called minor prophets? He said, well, because they're under 18 years of age. He's a wise guy. But... They're called minor, they're minor prophets, but that, because they're shorter than the major prophets, and their message is not minor by any stretch of the imaginations, as opposed to the major prophets whose message may be more important. No, they're all important. Uh, the minor prophets are no less the word of God than the major prophets are, or anything else in the scriptures. I don't have to tell you that the minor prophets are a neglected, neglected group. I think you know that already, because uh, when's the last time you heard one preached on? <laughs> And I'm telling you, I, I, the only one I can think I've preached on in my life, really, through the years, I'm talking, not talking about this church, was Jonah. Um, but as a rule, they're neglected. I think Christians have the idea somehow that these books are not very important. I think they look at them, oh, no, the, the dreaded minor prophets. Let's not even go there. But they are important, not only inspired, but they're important and necessary. At least the Lord thinks that they are, or he wouldn't have given them. And if he thinks they are, then who am I to say that they're not important? Uh, let's first cover a few preliminary issues, introductory issues in this book, and then we'll get into the first message tonight. Look at verse 1. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Obviously, the author is Malachi. His name means my messenger. Just simply says my messenger. Who's, whose messenger is he? Well, obviously, in the context here, as you read, he's the Lord's messenger. And nothing else is known about him. We only know one thing. He's the messenger of the Lord. We don't know anything about his family. We don't know about his occupation. We don't know about his background, his circumstances. We don't know anything about his life. We know one thing, and that's it. He is the messenger of the Lord. And that would be good for us to remember in light of what's happening today. It's, uh, the, the emphasis is, is not on, and the emphasis in the book of Malachi is not on the messenger of the Lord. It just simply says, my messenger. The emphasis is on the message. But in our day, the emphasis is on the messenger oftentimes. The guy who's behind the, the, the piece of wood up here that's speaking and uh, believe me, this is a piece of wood up here. And uh, it's not on the message oftentimes, though. And that's the way it's not to be. The book of Malachi is not about Malachi. It's about the Lord's message. He's simply the messenger, is all he is. 
By the way, one thing we need to note here in verse 1, it's technically what it says is this. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by the hand of Malachi. What it actually says, by the hand of Malachi, I don't know why. I have no idea as to why English translations don't translate those words. But for some reason, you'll know, you have to ask them. I have a lot of questions for translators I'd like to ask. They don't translate that, but that's what it says. It's by the hand of Malachi. In other words, Malachi is the human instrument through whom God, through whom God gave the word. As Brad said in our Sunday school lesson this morning, he quoted 2 Peter uh, 121, holy men of God spoke as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit, and Malachi is one of those men uh, that, it was t- that that verse is talking about. He was a man who was moved along by the Holy Spirit, by, and, and through his hand came this word through God. That's the author. What about the date and circumstances of the book? Well, based on certain references in Malachi, the book, in all likelihood, and I'm sure, took place after the Babylonian captivity. There's three reasons why that's probably so. First of all, there's a strong parallel between the sins mentioned by Malachi and those mentioned by Nehemiah. Nehemiah was after the Babylonian captivity. The sins that Nehemiah rebuked and the ones that Malachi rebuked are often the same. Like, for example, they talk about sins of the the corruption of the priesthood. Both of them talk about that. They both talk about marriage to idolaters. They both talk about not paying their tithes and many other things. So... That's a strong evidence that they both wrote at the same time, period in history. And then there's the existence of a temple in Malachi. The temple was destroyed by Babylon when they, when they took Judah into captivity. Um, but now it's, it's, it was rebuilt under the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, uh, who probably lived about 80 years before Malachi. Haggai and Zechariah preached, and they said, hey, rebuild this temple that's been destroyed by, by Babylon. Let's do this thing. And they did. And Malachi 1.10 is, is one reference to, that mentions the temple. It says there, Oh, that, you were, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that they, you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. And it's talking about the temple there. We'll get into that next week. There's also a third reason in verse 8. The word governor in verse 8, when the, you present the uh, blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why, why not offer it to your governor? Well, that word was used during this time in history of, uh, in this, in this, uh, under Persian rule. And we'll talk about that more next week again when we get to that passage. And so we, it's felt like um, very strongly that Malachi was written after the Babylonian captivity. Now, think, now, now, I know we talk about Babylonian captivity and all these things. Think about this for a minute. What's the order of events here? First of all, we were talking about David in 2 Samuel. That kingdom was united. Israel's kingdom was united under David altogether, right? Then... After Solomon's death, the kingdom is divided. Israel got into idolatry, and God says, okay, I'm going to judge you, and they they divided the kingdom, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And then uh, the northern kingdom sinned. Because they sinned against God, he sent them. uh, Assyria attacked and captured them. They were judged by Assyria in the 8th century B.C. By the way, when you're in the B.C. years, you're you're counting down. 8th century, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. On, when you're in AD, you're counting up one, two, three, four, five, all the way to now, the 21st century. And so, uh, a lot of people get that confused. That's why I mentioned that. Um, and then you have uh, the Southern Kingdom. They sinned against God in many ways, and God says, "Okay, you're going to be captured by Babylon. They're going to destroy you. They're going to come in." And they destroyed, and they did in Jerusalem. And and they came in three waves, and they over in the, in the sixth century, approximately, and they uh, they took. 
Judah captive, and they brought them to Babylon for seven years. They call it the Babylonian captivity. <clears throat> and then after that, in time, Persia conquered Babylon. And then Persia began to let Jews go back to Israel, back to their land, return back to their... Now, Malachi here in verse 1 says he calls the nation Israel again. See, it's not divided like it was before. This is after the Babylonian captivity, after they've been judged by God. Now they come back to... They're coming back to the land. They've been coming back to the land for about 100 years by the time Malachi writes. And, uh, and now they're called Israel again. Um, by the way, Nehemiah and Ezra entered the picture at this time. So Nehemiah, Ezra, and Malachi are contemporaries. They wrote about the same time. The date is probably in the middle of the 5th century B.C. for people who care about dates. About dates, dates, dates. If you read Malachi, read it against the background of Nehemiah chapter 13. Because the same sins are mentioned there, basically, as in Malachi. And they deal with the same type issues. Um, like I said, tithes for Levites, mixed marriages, and things of that nature. All right, what about the, the message of this book, the format of this book? We're going through a brief introduction, by the way. Not a lengthy one. We'll cover more as we go. There's only four chapters. Uh, the message of the book, this is, it says in verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord. Your translation may say burden, the burden of the word of the Lord can be translated either way. There's two ideas basically present here. This word has drawn a lot of uh, study, by the way. Uh, basically, though, in one sense, this is a burden imposed upon Malachi. God has imposed a burden upon him. The word can mean load. Animals carried the load, uh, different kinds of loads. It was used for that. So it's a burden in that sense, but it's a burden imposed upon him by the Lord now, and he has no, no, no choice in the matter. He's got to dislodge, discharge this burden to the people of Israel. He's got to accept his duty and do it, just like Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, that he said, woe is unto me if I don't preach the gospel. I've got, to, I've got a stewardship. I've got to discharge. Same thing here with Malachi. And secondly, there's this idea of compulsion um, that this word oracle has, or urgency, or even dread. It's a word that is, uh, you know, I've got to get this word of God out to people. This was put upon Malachi's shoulders. This oracle is a message of the utmost importance. So he's, he's got to give this out. Now, what, now, it says the oracle of the word of the Lord. The burden to be unloaded is the word of the Lord. That's what Malachi's got to give out. Almost half the uh, verses, only about 55 verses in this book, and almost half of them have some con contain the phrase, says the Lord or, or says the Lord of hosts or something like that. You can see that it's imprinted with the, the, the message of God all over this book. <clears throat> Malachi's message then finds its, its origin in the Lord. It's inspired word of God. It came from God. So this is none other than God-breathed scripture. Malachi is, even though people, as I say, tend to neglect, not tend to, definitely neglect the minor prophets. Now his message, what is it? Well, basically, his message is a rebuke of, of uh, dead orthodoxy in Israel. They, yeah, they were orthodox. By the way, they'd finally given up idolatry that they had been hammered for for years after the Babylonian captivity. But they, and they had orthodoxy, but it was kind of a dead orthodoxy at this time. Uh, people had a bad attitude. They had, were, there was spiritual apathy uh, everywhere. There were sinful attitudes uh, of the people toward the Lord, toward the worship of the Lord. So really, Malachi's book is a call to repentance. You need to repent of all this and get right with God. And of course, the, more, the Lord is the all-important subject, as always, in the book of Malachi. You're going to notice throughout this book this question and answer, answer method going on. A lot of questions being asked. Um, God will say something. The people question God in a cynical way. 
What are you talking about? And then he'll give them a very strong answer. And so that's how the book kind of lays out. All right, let's go to the first message of the book tonight, which deals with God's love for Israel. God's love for Israel. That's found in Malachi 1, verses 2 through 5. But let's start in verse 1. Malachi 1, 1 again. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through or by the hand of Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I love Jacob. But I have hated Esau, and I made his mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and rebuild and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. The first thing we see regarding God's love is God's love stated. It is stated. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, that's a very concise statement, very much to the point. It's definite. It's plain. Nobody can miss the meaning. How could you miss the meaning? The Lord loves Israel. That's what it says. It says it very plainly. After years of disobedience, even centuries of disobedience, uh, and they're presently disobeying the Lord in Malachi's time in, in the context of his book. And yet, the Lord says, I have loved you, Israel. Isn't that amazing? After all this, and you've read, many of you here have read through parts of the Old Testament, leave not the whole book, several times. And you, and you know the sins Israel's, Israel's committed. The bulk of this book, by the way, has got to, deal with, to do with God's displeasure for them because of their deadness of worship and, 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 and their routine they go through and, and all that. And yet, the first message that God gives in the book of Malachi is this, I love you, Israel. You're my people, I love you. That's amazing. Now, grammatically, that phrase means this, I have loved you in the past, and I still do. That hasn't changed. I still love you. God's love in all these centuries has not changed for Israel amazingly. It's not this, I used to love you, but you spurned my love again and again, and now I'm, I'm done with you. No, it's this. I've always loved you, and I still do. That's what it means. Now, approximately a 1,000 years earlier, think about that, a 1,000 years earlier or so, Moses testifies to the love of God for Israel. He says in Deuteronomy 7, by the way, a great verse, Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 and 8, it says there, this is early on in their history, the Lord did not set his love on you, Israel, set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord simply loved you, and he kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. Deuteronomy 10.15, yet, yet on our fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, it says, and he chose their descendants after them, even of you, above all peoples, as it is this day. Again, the words of Moses. You get to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3. Amazing verse. The Lord says to Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Then you go to Hosea, who, uh, who one person called the most magnificent, uh, I think, preacher of God's love, prophet of God's love. And he says in Hosea 11, 1, uh, and then following, he says, when Israel was a youth, God says, I loved him. When he was young, when he was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. 
Verse 2 says, in spite of that, in spite of God's love, Israel continued in idolatry. Verse 4, God says, I led them with the cords of a man with bonds of love. Amazing. Do you think the Lord loves Israel? But it says again and again. He says in words and deeds and actions all through the Old Testament, you see that the Lord loved Israel beyond any shadow of a doubt. Again and again. Now, what kind of a love was this that God had for his people? First of all, it's a sovereign love. A sovereign love. Think of the passages we considered, and there's many more, by the way, about the love of God for Israel. And those passages, it was God's, God's choice of, of the nation of Israel is, 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 is mentioned in connection with his love for them. He loved them, therefore he elected them. That's what it says in, in many cases, in many verses, especially Deuteron- uh, Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. Um, it says, out of all the nations in the world, the Lord chose Israel and he loved Israel. Why? Here's the question we all ask. Why did he choose Israel? We, we think, by the way, election did not start in the New Testament. It started in the Old Testament. Why did he choose Israel? Well, it was simply a sovereign choice. There's no other explanation. That's all it says. His decrees, his uh, actions are all based on his, the wisdom of his own will. He does what he does by his own wisdom. He's sovereign overall. He makes decisions because of the counsel of his own will. He doesn't see any need to consult us, by the way. What advice could I give the Lord? Deuteronomy says, uh, 7 says of Israel, the Lord has set his love on you. He set his love on you. God determined to love Israel. That's just how it was. Out of all the nations in the world, there was nothing to be gained by the Lord from this action, by the way. Nothing in it for him, nothing in it for him by doing this. There was no, they weren't the biggest nation around. There was nothing within the nation of Israel that, that attracted the attention of God somehow and said, oh, I've got to have this nation as my own. No, they're just unworthy sinners like the rest of us. It was solely a choice on his part. It was sovereign, a sovereign choice. His love is unconditional. His love is, is, is connected with, his, with election here. It's an electing love, and it's a sovereign love. And then, secondly, it is a faithful love. The Lord made a covenant with Israel in the early days, and he kept that covenant. By the way, he always keeps his covenants. He's, he's always faithful to the covenant, covenants that he, that he makes. That's a far cry from this society, isn't it? We break covenants on a whim. But God always keeps his covenants. Uh, he's always faithful to his people, faithful to love them through thick and thin, regardless of what's happening. Jeremiah recognized that trait of God's love in the book of Lamentations, verse 3. And he says, great is your faithfulness. In the middle of Jerusalem being destroyed, in the middle of Lamentations is a book of horrors. It's a horror story. And in the middle of that book, he says, Great, O Lord, is your faithfulness. We say in our marriage vows, till death do us part, God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. It's a faithful love always to Israel. A love of total commitment. Israel has often been unfaithful to him through the years, but he has always been faithful to them in return. That's the characteristic of the Lord. It's how he, that's who he is. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless... God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So the Lord is faithful. He's sovereign in his love towards Israel, his people. That nation in the Old Testament he chose. And the love of God is not only an Old Testament concept. Most people don't even think of it as an Old Testament concept. It's also, it also continues in the New Testament. You see the same thing. Daniel read the passage earlier, 1 John, that talked about the love of God. John 13 uh, Jesus said to, of his disciples, now before, it says of Jesus in regard to his disciples, uh, rather, John 13, 1. Now before the Passover, 
Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to, to the Father, having, I love this verse, having loved his own, it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Always the love that Jesus had for his 12 disciples. In Romans 8, Paul asked the question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Verse 37 says, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Verse 39, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is all about love. God is love. Ephesians 5.2, Paul picks up the theme of the love of God again. Uh, it says there, he tells us that we're to walk in love, it says, just as Christ also loved you. That's how we're to walk, in love. And, and, this, and the, uh, the barometer we measure that by is the love of Christ, the love that Christ has. Just as also Christ loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Verse 29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. What a love the Lord has for his own. And you and I are recipients of that love. You know, there, there's a, a great song I love. It's called The Love of God. And we've sang it here every once in a while, but that song I'm very impressed by. I don't really don't quote songs, but that song I'm very impressed every time I hear it. I love, I love verse 3. It says this. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. To know the love of God is the greatest privilege in all the world, that we are loved by him. Tremendous, tremendous thought. That love compelled Christ to go to the cross and to suffer for us as no man has. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if you're here tonight and you're a stranger to this love or you're, you're watching you're a stranger to this love, you don't have to remain that way. Jesus said, come unto me, all you that are weary and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And he will give you rest from your spiritual burdens. Bring him your sins, the sins that burden you down. Confess it to him and believe on him alone as Savior. He'll give you the rest that you need, the spiritual rest. So the Lord says to Israel in Malachi 1, I have loved you. Now, that should be good enough, right? Uh, if a person says, I love you, they may have to back it with their actions. But when God says, I love you, that's the end of the argument. should be good enough. God has stated his love. That should end the matter right there. should be over with. We can go home right now, right? No. That's why we have the book of Malachi. It does not end there because, secondly, God's love is questioned. His love is questioned in verse 2. He says, I love you. I've loved you, says the Lord. I've always loved you. I still love you. But you say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? Uh, that's, you know, the Lord's declaration of love should not be followed up by a question as to how he has loved them. Should have been a statement they have welcomed. They should have welcomed the statement, especially after all they've been through. They should have brought, had comfort brought to their hearts by that statement. But instead, they have the audacity to express doubt concerning his love for them. You know, another question you think of, well, why in the world would they say that? Why would they question the love of God? Why would they doubt the love of God? Well, 
Haggai and Zechariah made some glowing prophecies to, to the returnees coming back from Persia <clears throat> so many years before. They promised the people blessing, if you read the, the books, and prosperity and peace and the return of God's presence. They said there's going to be a great future for Israel. Reminds me of Jeremiah 29:11. I know the plans I have for you, plans for prosperity and peace, and people claim that as their life first, and it's talking about Israel. Um, you know, people, they, God promised them to this. For example, there's a promise in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 20, about many peoples and mighty nations coming to seek the Lord at Jerusalem. But that wasn't happening. That hadn't happened yet. And, and by the way, that's still future. And so the people were becoming cynical, and they were becoming disillusioned, and, they were, and there was doubts growing in their mind. They're still under Persian rule. That hadn't changed. They're still, yes, they had a degree of freedom now. <clears throat> Still under Persian rule, though. And they're suffering from insects and invasions, according to chapter 3, verse 11, maybe locusts. And so they have economic problems and political problems and religious problems, and all these things are going on. And this is all due to their disobedience, by the way. And they forgot about all the things that God had done for them throughout history, as Deuteronomy had warned them, don't forget. Deuteronomy 8 and many chapters, don't forget what I've done for you. I'm doing all these great things for you. Don't forget. I hope we don't forget what God's done for us done so many great things, and so they, they forgot about what God had done for them, and they forgot even now he was being faithful to them, and this time he's writing to them. And so they grew sour on life, and they said cynically, how have you loved us? Are you kidding me? You say this is love? Let me ask you a question. You ever question God's love for yourself? You ever question his love in your life? Does God really love me? Is this, uh, if, if you look at your circumstances and you wonder, is this what it's like for God to love me? He can, surely he can do better than this. I deserve better than this. And that's what happens when we become like the people in Malachi's day. We begin to question the love of God. And as you read through this book, you're going to see that the, the reason they question God's love is because their love for God had grown cold. They didn't love him like they should have. They left their first love. So their worship became cold. It became dead. Just the routine. I got to go through the routine. I got to go to church on Sunday morning. Got to go to church on maybe Sunday night and maybe Wednesday night if I'm really good. And it became just a routine to them. They gave God the leftovers. They didn't give him the best. They, it, it, there was no real heart in their worship. That's what you see in this book. They're guilty of sinful practices in this book that are pointed out. It's no wonder they question God's love with this kind of attitude they begin to take on. You know, when we, whenever we quit cultivating the love for God in our hearts, whenever we just things become routine to us and we start taking the Lord for granted, whenever we, we think the Lord owes us something more, whenever we begin to grow discontent with our circumstances, uh, and whenever we've sinned and we don't even deserve the least of his mercies, and yet we don't think about that, we just sin against God, and we, and we develop that kind of attitude, whenever we develop a cynical spirit, when those things happen, that's when we begin to question God's love for us. Does God really love me? And the whole thing is not, is, does God love me? The whole thing is we're messed up. And that's when our relationship with God begins to take a nosedive. The problem is not, is not your circumstances, it's your heart. Let me ask you a question. Are you discontent with God tonight? Are you discontent with your, your circumstances? That's a telltale sign. Are you mad at God? Do you question his love? Have you been questioning his love for you? The problem lies not with the circumstances, but with your heart. God, there's a need for repentance, as Malachi is calling for repentance throughout this book. There's a need for renewed gratitude for the Lord's goodness to us. We have no right 
to ever question the love of God for us. And then thirdly, God's love demonstrated. It's demonstrated in verses 2 through 4. God says, I've loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? <clears throat> Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet he loved, I have loved Jacob. But I hated Esau. I made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. And I brought them to destruction. I will bring them to destruction in verse 4. The Lord answers a question with a question. And then it's a strange answer he gives. You kind of look at this and you're puzzled. Uh, wait a minute. He says, you, 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 you say you loved us. And then we say, how did you love us? And he says, was not Jacob, Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I loved Jacob and I hated Esau. Huh? What, what's he saying here? The Lord is going to demonstrate his proof that he loves Israel by drawing a distinction between Israel, whom he has chosen, and Esau, whom he has rejected. He's going to show them that they're the ones that are the, the choice people. He says, was well, not Esau Jacob's brother? Well, yeah, they were not only brothers, they were twin brothers. Twin brothers. Their mother was Rebecca. Genesis 25, 23 talks about that incident. It says in Genesis 25, 23, the Lord said to Rebekah, Two nations are in your womb, Esau, Jacob. Two peoples will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Esau was the older brother, by the way. Now, Paul comments on this verse in Romans 9. We're not going to get into all of Romans 9. I'll let Mike deal with that. Romans 9, verses 10 to 15. Listen to this. You can turn there if you want. Romans chapter 9, verse 10. It says there, Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had, done, had not done anything good or bad, so that God's, listen to this, nothing had happened yet, they were still in the womb, so that God's purpose according to election <clears throat> might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, that's God, it, is said to, it, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's Malachi. What shall we say then, still in Romans 9, there is no injustice with God as there, may it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now this decree of God took place before the twins were born, while in the womb. And, and, and God chose basically on his sovereign will. He chose Jacob rather than Esau. Now, that doesn't mean that all of Jacob's descendants are going to be saved, Israel's descendants. That doesn't mean all of Esau's descendants are going to be lost necessarily. It simply means that Esau's descendants as a nation are not the elect nation Israel was in the Old Testament. Now, how did God demonstrate his love for Israel? He chose them to be his people. That's how he demonstrated it. He established his covenant with them. Israel's been blessed by God to be the choice nation of God. That's the greatest, I mean, what else could they, could they hope for? They're loved by God, they're blessed by God. Esau was not, this all has to do with God's election, not emotion, it's election. Now what does it mean when it says, I've hated Esau? That's strong language, I've hated Esau. Some Bible students understand this to mean that God preferred uh, Jacob over Esau. He preferred them. In other words, that would be a love of comparison in that view. The Lord loves Jacob, but he thinks less of Esau. Well, that's not what he means here in Malachi, though. What Malachi, Malachi is saying is, is not that he's not saying that God loved Jacob more than Esau. He's saying that God 
love Jacob rather than Esau. He's saying, I love Jacob. I didn't love Esau. That's what he's saying. Genesis 28, 14, the Lord told Jacob, and you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That doesn't seem very fair to us, does it? We, th- we look at this and we're puzzled and we're thinking, that's not very fair. I mean, let's face it, that, don't we think this? How do we explain this? And then Rob asked me a question. How do we explain this? Rob's always asking me questions. Here's the answer. We don't explain this. Because we can't explain this in a way that anybody's going to be satisfied with here. Simply take it this way, God is sovereign over all. He's sovereign, and he made a sovereign choice. That's the end of the argument. That's it. I can't explain it any further than that. That's what it says. That's all it says. Let me ask you a question. Is God a hater? We, call, we say, oh, that guy's a hater. Is God a hater? It says he hated here, hated Esau. Don't we have a difficult time of thinking of God as being a hater? Hating something, hating somebody, hating Esau, hating anybody. Why would God hate anybody, right? We're never told that. We're told he loves everybody. The reason we think that is because we think of hatred in the way that we express it. See, when we express hatred, it's, it's, it's feelings of malice, right? Feelings of bitterness towards people. Uh, feelings of, 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 of we envy or whatever. We say about someone, I hate him. I hate that guy. Have you ever said that? Nobody here has ever said that, right? And that's sin, isn't it? To have that hatred in your heart like that. That's sinful. And believers are not supposed to hate people. They're supposed to love people, 1 John tells us. But with God, hatred is not a sinful act. Why? Because there's no sin in God, right? God is light and Him is no darkness at all. And so if I can say it this way, God's hatred is pure. It's free from sin. It's free from sinful thoughts. There's no sinful motives in God's hatred. No sinful attitudes or or actions at all. God does not sin when he hates. He doesn't sin when he hates. He's righteous to hate. His hatred is grounded in his holiness. You know there's times in the Bible where it says that God hates people or things. It says it again and again. Psalm 5, verse 5. Listen to this. Psalm 5, 5. It says of God, you hate all who do iniquity. Wait a minute. God hates all who does iniquity, who do iniquity? That sounds strange to us. How about verse 6? The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. God hates the man who loves violence. Concerning idolatry, the Lord says in Jeremiah 44, 4, Oh, do not do this abominable thing which I hate. The Lord is righteous in his hatred, whether that's hating evildoers or evil. He's righteous in that. And by the way, evildoers are bent on doing what? They're bent on bringing harm to other people that are innocent. And so you can see more maybe a little bit why. Why do you think God established in in Romans 13 government is to have law enforcement, to stop the evildoer, the the guy who's a servant of God, the, the police officer doesn't bear the sword in vain. Why do you think God does that? To stop the evildoer. He's going to hurt people. The Lord had just reason to hate Esau and the Edomites. He had, the Edomites are descendants of Esau. He had just reasons to hate them, plenty of reasons. For example, in Numbers 20, Israel said to Edom, when they were passing through the king's highway down in the desert, the southern part of, of Israel, they said, we want to pass through. There was a king's highway they went through there where all the trade went through, and they said, let us pass through your territory. We'll go on the king's highway. We won't, go, you know, we won't, go, we won't take any of your water, none of your food, none of that. And they said, no. And they came out with an army to meet them. You're not coming through here. 
That, made a, that put a great hardship on Israel. Nevertheless, in Deuteronomy 23.7, the Bible says, God says to Israel, you shall not detest an Edomite, for he's your brother. Don't detest him, don't hate him. But that didn't stop the Edomites from detesting Israel, did it? Obadiah 10, a book, a, a book that's a prophecy against Edom. Obadiah 10, it says of Edom, because of violence done to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. So Edom was guilty of some kind of violence against, against Israel. Again, Obadiah 11, it says of Edom, on the day you stood aloof, on the day strangers carried off Israel's wealth, <coughs> foreigners entered his gate and they cast lots for Jerusalem. They were besieging Jerusalem. You two were one of them. When Jerusalem was under siege, uh, Edom just stood by, idly by, and did nothing. They watched it all happen, and they were egging them on, basically, just like they did. And so you read the whole book of Obadiah. There's plenty of reasons the Lord has for hating Edom, plenty of them. They're a proud nation, an arrogant nation. And so the Lord says in verse 3, I hated Esau. I have made his mountains a desolation. I appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. And when did that happen? It happened during the same century Malachi's writing. Because what happens is a group of uh, people called the Nabataean Arabs come along uh, in the land of Edom. They invade Edomite territory. And they forced, over time, they forced Edomites to move out. They had to move out of their territory. And eventually the Arabs took over the country. And eventually Edom became a residence for, it was uninhabited, a place for jackals of the desert to, to come in and just wander around. Verse 4 says, Though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. It's like, you think you, think you have us? We're going to come back there and just rebuild the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I'm going to tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. See the pride seeping through Edom again? Read Obadiah again. There's so much pride that comes out of these people. They say, we've been defeated. Nevertheless, we're going to rebuild our society. We're going to rebuild the ruins. But the Lord will stand in their way and not let it happen. Not going to let it happen. Not going to let them succeed. And Edom's going to be known as this. Listen to this. How would you like to have this designation uh, thrown on your country? You're going to be known as the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Wow, that's kind of like people in hell, isn't it? Eternal uh, fire that God is indignant with them forever, for eternity. What a horrible thought. And the prophecy has been fulfilled is being fulfilled, if you will. The Nabataeans drove them out of their land. And then in 185 B.C., a guy in his group, a guy named Judas Maccabeus came in, and he basically crushed them. <clears throat> and then you have a handful of people called Idumeans coming out of Edom. And I think Herod the Great was one. And then they kind of disappear and go off the scene. And they're not heard of after that. If you go today to the famous city of Petra, we talked about this when we were in Obadiah, and I showed you the pictures of the... Uh, of, of the, uh, the, the mountainous city they lived in, the mountainous area. People couldn't even penetrate the city. It was so strong and mountainous and all that. If you go to the famous city of Petra today in, from ancient Edom, it's a valuable archaeological site. It's beautiful uh, mountains and all that, but there's nobody living there. It's uninhabited. It's abandoned. And the love of God towards Israel was demonstrated in his rejection of Edom. That's how he demonstrated his love. I chose you, Israel. I rejected your brother, Edom. And then finally, God's love validated. Verse 5, he says, Your eyes, Israel, are going to see this, 
and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Your eyes are going to see this. This is this the Lord is saying, you want a proof that I love you? You're questioning my love? You want concrete demonstration that I love you? Your eyes are going to see my judgment on Edom. It's going to happen. You're going to witness it. You're going to see it. I told you it's going to happen. I'll demonstrate it. And you're going to say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. And the Lord was magnified. Uh, when, and Edom is beyond the border of Israel, and the, Lord, and the Lord was magnified in the case of Edom. By the way, in Malachi, there's this, there's this idea of God's glory among the nations. Look at verse 11. For from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name, God says, will be great among the nations. Every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. That's the Lord's desire, that his name be great among the nations, to be magnified, whether that's through judging people or whether that's through people turning to him across the world. But his name will be glorified. And one day yet to come, Zechariah chapter 8, verse 23 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, a future time, ten men from all nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. You don't think God loves Israel? The Lord validated his love for them, and he will yet validate it. Does he love Israel? Does he still have a future plan for Israel? Turn to, uh, we'll close in a second here. Turn to Romans chapter 11 with me. Romans 11, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says that there's a future plan for Israel. God hasn't given up on his people whom he loves greatly with an everlasting love. Romans 11, verse 1. I say then, this is in the New Testament, Paul, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, Paul says, in his lifetime, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious, gracious choice. God still is working with Israel. Galatians 3.8 says, and, and we, we benefit, believers today benefit from the promise made to Abraham. Galatians 3.8 says, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then th those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. That's us. Believers today are blessed with, uh, with those who come to Christ and those who put their faith in Christ, we are blessed. And the same Lord that loved Israel loves us today. He loves us. Don't ever, let me just leave this with one thought, don't ever, ever, ever question the love of God. The fact that he says it in his word should be enough for us. Should be enough. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight again. We pray that we would understand and recognize that you love your people, Lord and that uh, we can revel in your love, we can take comfort in your love, we can be encouraged by your love, knowing that you've placed your special love upon us today, Lord. We're grateful for that. We pray we would love you in return, love you because you first loved us, that we would uh, love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, our neighbor as ourself, and that we would carry out the commands you've given us, Lord, 
because you do love us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.